from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. Well, I think that the biggest thing that got me into into this book was the accumulation of events. I think that in the opening section of the book, I talk about that this is a book about collision. It's not simply what happened with Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and Ferguson and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner, but also those events colliding with what sports has been looking like post 9-11. The more I watch sporting events and those sporting events that I attend since I do this for a living, you could look and you could see the shift. You could see the shift toward what I refer to or what I believe to be more authoritarianism. When you watch a game on TV, so much of the game is geared toward the authoritarian symbols, whether it's the American flag or whether it's the police or the soldiers and the flags and the flyovers. And on the one hand, because I lived in New York and I was covering the Yankees during 9-11, I was there. I understood it. And then it began to bother me because you began, you know, once you started to realize the John McCain, Jeff Flake report, that all of this was staged. Howard Bryant, senior writer for ESPN.com, ESPN the magazine, sports correspondent for NPR Weekend Edition, and author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, published by Beacon Press. Ryan spent more than two decades covering sports. He has witnessed firsthand how the dynamic of sports has changed since 9-11. In his latest book, The Heritage, Brian looks at the long-standing tradition among African-American athletes of speaking out on issues of social justice. He traces that history back to Jackie Robinson, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, and others. According to Bryant, a collision has occurred and is taking place at sporting events. Today, sports arena and stadiums have been transformed into staging grounds for American patriotism and the hero worship of law enforcement. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism with Howard Bryant in Black America. There are very, very few times when I write a project and somebody gets what I get out of it. We all The book doesn't belong to me anymore. The book belongs to the person who picks it up and decides to read it. I think it's important to me to think about citizenship and to think about patriotism and what these words mean. I think it's important to me to think about how we treat athletes, especially black athletes. I think it's also important to think about how we view citizenship and patriotism and and commercialism, the power of corporations and the power of corporations, no matter what your political affiliation is, to take away what you have when you simply are exercising what is supposed to be your right as an American. According to some fans, African-American athletes should keep their politics off the field. For more than four decades, they did just that. They didn't use their platforms to advocate for social change. Now, with NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem, athletes have once again asserted their voices. In his book, The Heritage, sports journalist Howard Bryant examined a new paradigm between sports and patriotism. He traces the history of the athlete activists, detailing the challenges historically and present-day athletes face and how the relationship between sports and politics has always been more complicated for African-American athletes. Through extensive research and interviews with some of sports' best-known stars, including Carlin Kaepernick, David Ortiz, Charles Barkley, and Chris Webber, 
as well as members of law enforcement and the military. Brian detailed the collision of post-9-11 sports in this country and the politically engaged post-Ferguson African-American athlete. Recently in Black America spoke with Howard Bryant. I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. And what was life like growing up in Boston? Well, Boston has its its own history when it comes to race, and everyone thinks what they know about the city. But I grew up during busing in Boston during the desegregation years in the mid-1970s, and it was uh, much of what everyone had heard it to be. But there are a lot of things about growing up in that town that, that certainly shape you. But then going from there and going to college in Philadelphia at Temple University, it uh, it also just sort of opened your eyes to... The, you know, the different regions in the country, let's put it that way. What led you to Temple and San Francisco State University? Well, to get my education. I mean, I think that the biggest thing for me was to, I always wanted to live in California, and I mm-hmm. transferred from Philadelphia. And I think also I wanted to, I was not that kid who wanted to stay at home and go to school, even though Boston's got great mm-hmm. colleges and universities. I wanted to see a little bit of the country and try to see all of it. What led you to journalism? Well, accountability, I think, more than anything else. I think that, you know, I think one of the things that I wanted to do, and I think it's very clear and sort of evident in this book and all the books that I do, but especially especially in the heritage, is who gets to tell your story. I think one of the things about journalism, even though people like to spend a lot of time talking about the media being untrustworthy, the one thing that the media does have is it is the gatekeeper to the information that people get. It's not just the information gatekeeper to the information that people get, but it tells the it it gets to decide whose stories get told and how those stories get told. And when you grow up African American in this country, you don't necessarily feel like your story is being told through the proper lens. And there would be many times even in something as innocuous as a, as a sporting event, I'd go watch a Celtics game or a Red Sox game or whatever. And you'd read the write-up in the paper the next day, and you're like, well, that's not the game I saw. So you wanted to be in the industry where you could actually have some impact and some influence over the lens. So you could actually start to see, say things the way you saw them. And that was important to me. What led you to write The Heritage? Well, I think that the biggest thing that, that got me into, into this book was the accumulation of events. Mm-hmm. I think that in the opening section of the book, I talk about that this is a book about collision. Right. It's not simply what happened with Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and Ferguson and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner, but also those events colliding with what sports has been looking like post 9-11. The more I watch sporting events and those sporting events that I attend since I do this for a living, you could look and you could see the shift. You could see the shift toward what I refer to or what I believe to be more authoritarianism. When you watch a game on TV, so much of the game is geared toward the authoritarian symbols, whether it's the American flag or whether it's the police or the soldiers and the flags and the flyovers. And on the one hand, because I lived in New York and I was covering the Yankees during 9-11, I was there. I understood it. And then it began to bother me because you began, you know, once you started to realize the John McCain, Jeff Flake report, that all of this was staged and that so much of it that the, the military was paying these sports teams to display these these patriotic symbols when it was being sold to the public as just an organic measure to support the troops, 
that didn't sit well with me. That struck me as a deception, and it certainly struck me as a deception when this was taking place at the same time we were telling African-American athletes to shut up and dribble and stick to sports, and we were criticizing them for actually becoming or, or using their citizenship. And so that you know, that collision told me there was a story there. And on top of that, there was something else. I began thinking about this revival of athletes using their voice mm-hmm. because it had been so long. Right. And it connected me to Paul Robeson and Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali. But it also asked me another question. And that question was, where have they been? Where did they go? And when you start making a a line through this, there's a break in that line. That line pretty much ends with Muhammad Ali in the early 70s. And it doesn't get revived again in terms of superstar players until LeBron James and Dwayne Wade with the Miami Heat after Trayvon Martin was killed. So part of this book was about that history, that heritage, what happened to it, and how that heritage is being received in a time of post-9-11 sports being sold through patriotism and through militarism. I found it interesting how you connected the dots from Paul Robeson till today. And it's interesting that a lot of people really didn't know or don't know his story and what actually happened to him once he came before that committee. That's true. Well, most people don't know what happened last Thursday. (laughs) We don't spend a lot of time focusing in on our history, and then it's a surprise that we repeat it and that we don't know it. Exactly. And so Paul Robeson... People don't even know that Robeson, who to me I refer to as the charter member of the Heritage, he was one of the first, if not the first, real political black athlete. And I'm not talking about Jack Johnson, who did what he did in public. And Mm -hmm. I'm talking about being a politically aware, political activist athlete. And Paul Robeson was a great Rutgers All-American and played in the National Football League in 1921 and 1922 and then became an actor. And one of the reasons... He had gone into acting because the NFL was segregated. They adopted segregation between 1923 and 1945. And so when you start thinking about those athletes who use their political voice, who use their brains, Robeson was one of the first. And then, of course, you've got Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson. And and then, of course, when you had Jackie Robinson testify against Paul Robeson in 1949 in front of the House on American Activities Committee, you started to see the power of the athlete and especially of the black athlete. And for all the times we tell athletes to stick to sports, it's important to remember that the Robeson testimony and the Robinson testimony, neither one had anything to do necessarily with the state. Well, Robinson's testimony certainly was not in advocacy of the of African-Americans. It, right. he, he was brought in there to testify against an African-American. So all of this conversation about you know, black people inserting themselves or inserting politics into their sports, it's really completely inaccurate. But what I do love about that, about that testimony that day, was even though all the headlines were of Robinson denouncing Paul Robeson's communism, what really came out of that for me when you read that full testimony was Jackie Robinson talking about how African Americans were suffering through police misconduct and lynching and police brutality and inequality and poor education and all of those things. And to me, that's the start of the heritage. That's where that, that, that responsibility was born. And today, no matter whether we're talking about Tiger Woods or LeBron James or Michael Jordan, at some point, we always ask, especially other black people, we always ask, what did you do for the community? So no matter how many championships you win, 
people still look at someone like Michael Jordan and they wonder if he had done enough. And they look at someone like LeBron James and say, what a difference that how welcome him using his platform has been for us. Why was it since African Americans at certain points were speaking out about their conditions, communism always came up? Why? Well, because I think that there were so many different examples, and you see it today, where the mainstream never wants to believe that the conditions are what they are. You see it happening when there's a problem in a given community, and then the local community blames it on outside agitators instead of saying, no, we got a problem here. The same thing always happened with the black community when black people would talk about the conditions that we were facing, whether it was down in the Confederate South or whether it's in Boston. It was always, oh, well, no, most of these people were outside agitators. So so communism was, in, was an easy target to sort of misdirect from the problems that were actually taking place, which is why the Robinson testimony was so important, where he, he said that just because, essentially he said, just because a communist is saying this police brutality, it doesn't mean they're lying. And, and, and the, the you know, black anger is not being stirred up by communists that you know, black people have been stirred up long before. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Howard Bryant, senior writer at ESPN and author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. African-American athletes who spoke out did pay a price. Kirk Flood, at some point after two or three seasons, couldn't make a living. Ali was denied his boxing license. And it seems that when athletes do speak out back in the day, there is a lot of backlash from that. Oh, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons why I say to people all the time, the Heritage is not a club you want to join. Mm-hmm. It's a club that history and time has placed upon you. And it's one of these things where we spend so much time thinking about the what's the best way to put it? When we spend so much time thinking about the player wanting attention, this is not something that they want. When you go and look at the list of players who have decided to take a risk on behalf of their people, they've gotten destroyed professionally. Look at what happened to Paul Robeson. He was destroyed by speaking out on behalf of black people. Jackie Robinson is everywhere. He's on his name is on highways. He's on a stamp. They named schools after him. Right. But it should be remembered that Jackie Robinson, after he retired, was never offered a job in Major League Baseball. And the reason was because he was too militant. And when you look at someone like Kurt Flood, he spoke up and tried to challenge the reserve clause in baseball. He was blackballed. And you look at Muhammad Ali, and the only reason we talk about Muhammad differently than everybody else is because Muhammad was so good, he got his life back. And when he lost three and a half years... In 19, starting in 1967, mm-hmm. we talk about him as a champ because unlike everybody else who ended up being destroyed and never got back their full potential, Ali won the championship again in 75, 74 in Zaire. And so think about how different history would have been if Ali had never won his championship back. He would have been another one destroyed for speaking out. And so these things are no small, they're not small items. This is the, the risk you take and this is the... This is the inheritance that is placed upon you as being what I refer to as the ones who made it. When you look at African Americans, the black athlete to me has always been the most important, most influential, most visible. 
black employee this country's ever produced. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones who integrated the country. They're the ones who integrated the culture. They're the ones who had the access to the schools. I mean, when we, when we talk about this, one thing we never talk about is think about how different HBCUs would be right. if those black if if those universities hadn't siphoned off black talent. If Wilt Chamberlain went to Howard instead of Kansas. Or if all those great black players ended up staying at HBCUs, how different the the history would have been. These guys are the ones who were out front, and and because of that, it it's one of the one of the big reasons why I wrote this book was to say stick to sports never existed for these athletes. The black community has always needed to hear from them. What was it about the African American athletes to a larger society? Intelligentsia couldn't make headway, but black athletes were acceptable. And you talk about that, the body versus the brain. No, that's right. And that's that's exactly what it is. It's the, the black body over the black brain. And because of that, you make an argument, and it's not a very difficult argument to make. The black body is the currency of black America. It's the mm-hmm. reason why we were here in the first place. We weren't brought here for our brains. Okay. And when you think about athletics, it's the same thing. Athletics was supposed to be the transition to the black brain, that you used your athletic ability. And even if you blew your knee out or got injured, you were still on the college campus and you were going to be exposed to higher education. And as we look at this in 2018, we see the exact opposite happening. You see a lot of African-American athletes leave those campuses completely uneducated, and so it's a magic bullet, golden ticket type of dynamic where, where okay, if you're going to be one of the 1% of players or one half of 1% of players who becomes that multimillionaire in the professional ranks, then mission accomplished. But that was never the goal. The mission was that the black body was going to be transitioned into using your mind, and that's why you're on the college campus in the first place. It hasn't worked out that way. What is the relationship between sports participation and citizenship? Well, I think the biggest relationship is is that they go hand in hand. You are a citizen, and I think one of the things about the heritage about this book that I'm that I find compelling that I was trying to get across as an idea was that we live in a time right now where the black athlete's citizenship is being questioned simply by being a citizen. So much of these years we've spent saying, oh, well, when are these athletes going to speak out and use their power? Then they use their power, and you have the president of the United States calling them SOBs and saying that they shouldn't even have jobs, that they should lose their employment, they should lose their livelihood, and that maybe they don't even belong in the country because they have the nerve to actually exercise their citizenship. How can we get the majority society, if at all, to understand what you know what the problems are? Because it seems that they are walking around with with blinders on. Well, I think the first thing, I think the first thing that you do, number one, is you got to read a book or something. Like we always say, I mean, it starts to, are you paying attention to the culture that you live in? I mean, that's the most important thing to me is whether or not you're even aware. If you're unaware of things, it's kind of hard to to know anything. So I think that the most important thing people can do is to sort of wake up and pay attention that this is your country. It's fascinating to me how many people say, oh, well, you know, I'm really not into politics. I don't really get involved in politics. <laughs> you're involved in politics whether you want to be or not. I mean, you're involved in this simply by waking up in the morning. You may not exercise your politics, but you're involved 
you're involved by doing nothing. You're helping people get their way because you're not creating, you're not letting your own voice be heard. How long did it take you to to, to put this book together? Because it's, it's more than just talking about Colin uh, Kaepernick and, you know, kneeling uh, during the national anthem. No, I think that this project for me was much more, and it took about two years to write for the most part, but absolutely it was never just about Colin Kaepernick or any of that stuff. It was always about it was always about citizenship and it was always about it was always about the the idea of the player exercising his citizenship and also what citizenship means as a country. Who gets to be the patriot? Can you have an opinion in the United States anymore without somebody telling you you're un American or unpatriotic? And what is happening to our sports where every time you watch a game, you're being surreptitiously recruited by the military and nobody seems to care. And what does it say about black citizenship when you have essentially African-American athletes being called unpatriotic for protesting a very real issue in our communities, and then that is being distorted by media into not caring about your country? For years, we said that we wanted the player to take an interest and when they do take an interest, we say they're not supporting troops and they're being unpatriotic. So this entire book is a question about that. And one of the things that I was very proud of in the project was talking to veterans themselves, liberal, conservative, black, white, and asking them how they felt about where we were and about how militarized sports has become and in a lot of ways how militarized the country has become. And I was very pleased to hear so many talk about their feelings about the direction of where of where we're going. It's it was very rewarding to me. When did we begin playing the national anthem before sporting events? It started in nineteen eighteen, so it's been a hundred years. And I think what's interesting is people asking how long we've been doing it, but I think one thing that's been happening now too is people are starting to ask why we're doing it. And and that's a very interesting place to be considering all of the different questions that are being asked of us that people are now starting to ask this question of sports because they don't play the national anthem when you go to the theater exactly. when you go to the or when you go to the movies or when you go to an amusement park or when wherever but with sports that's you know you go to a concert they don't do this but they do with sports and so people are beginning to ask these questions and i think also i think also one of the things that's been very interesting in listening to people is 20 years now, almost 20 years after 9-11, I think people are also starting to see the, the true effects of how devastating that day was and also the commercialism that's come out of it. I, I, I'm hoping that this time period, as polarized and divided as it feels, is also an opportunity for people to reassert themselves and, and, and talk about things that they want that they want to see and also the things that they don't want to see. When you look at America as it is today, has things gotten better or worse as far as African-American athletic participation in sports and, and, and having a voice? Well, I think that depends on your, your terminology. I mean, to me, better or worse is, is relative. Okay. I think if you're talking about, I think if you're talking about players, sure, players are making more money than ever and players have a lot of power and players are doing all kinds of different things in terms of Sure, their conditions are much, much better than they were when Jackie Robinson played or when Roger Staubach played. 
but at the same time, you also see players in situations where they're not making great deals of progress in terms of ownership or in terms Mm -hmm. of front offices or in terms of citizenship, in terms of, I think a lot of us need to change our, we need to change our dynamics in terms of how we view players. I think a lot of times we look at players as if we own them. We want the players to perform for us, but we don't want them to have opinions. I don't think we should do that to them. So I think that it all depends on sort of what your measure is of of progress. I think one thing that I do think is very encouraging is that the players now, because of players like LeBron James and Derek Rose and Dwayne Wade and a lot of these players are now feeling much more comfortable being citizens and asserting themselves and letting people know that they are willing to take a stand if they think something is is wrong. I think that's very encouraging instead of being pushed and shied away from as they were in the uh, as they were in the 1990s and the 1980s from getting involved in issues. Do you think there's a double standard? We got African American athletes that speak out and there's a problem, but if uh, African American in another profession speaks out, there's not that much pushback. I think there's always pushback. Okay. And I think that of course, I think there's a double standard. And that double standard is that double standard is very much obvious when it comes to the black athlete. You look at the money that the black athlete has. Why are we telling the black athlete to shut up and play when we elected a president who's rich? Mm-hmm. And we elected a mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, who's rich. And and we and and we talk about Mark Cuban as a presidential candidate because he's rich and Oprah Winfrey as a presidential candidate because she's rich. So money is the currency of this country. People listen to the people who have money. Yet for the black athlete, we tell them to shut up and play because we feel like we own them. We treat them like it, their job is to entertain us and they don't get to be citizens. That They forfeit their citizenship for the money. We don't do that to other professions. A couple more questions, Mr. Bryant. Are we expecting... Too much from my African-American athletes? No, I don't think so. I think that you're asking of them what you would generally ask of anybody who has an opportunity to help people. Is it a lot? Absolutely. It's a lot. Is it a difficult road? Sure. On balance, are you asking too much from somebody who looks up to you, whose currency comes from their celebrity, who does commercials and sells products under the guise of Making you think they are people of substance? No, I don't think that's too much. Be like Mike. They're selling something to you of virtue. I don't think it's too much to ask of them to have a little bit of it. I was thinking about the iconic photo. I think it was the Cleveland Summit had Lou Alcindor. Mm-hmm. He had just and Jim Brown, and Jim Bill Brown, Russell, Ali, and Bill Russell. What made those individuals speak out against injustices? And then we had that lag after O.J. Simpson to the day that they felt comfortable in expressing their opinion. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, and I don't think it's as simple as just to say, well, they had money or that Ali and Jim Brown were better people. I don't think it's that. I think mm-hmm. it's a lot of things. I think the first thing is is that money is a big deal. Howard Bryant, senior writer for ESPN.com, ESPN the Magazine, sports correspondent for NPR Weekend Edition, and author of The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook, 
and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.